Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Montford. I'm joined today by Viscount Newport, who's the boss at Bradford Estates. Now, Bradford Estates has got an impressive 900-year history, stewarding and managing land across the Shropshire and Staffordshire border. But it's a thoroughly modern business with a focus on rural leisure, creating green infrastructure and broader job creation across an area that's often struggled to retain its talent. The Viscount Newport was also built on his experience at Quadrant to put together a 250,000 square foot business called Bradford Industrial, which supports much of his work across the area. Now, Bradford Estates is also looking to create a major new scheme called Western, which is a proposed development that would create around 4 million square foot of employment space, the largest in the region, with up to 10,000 jobs and 3,000 new homes in a new garden city. In today's podcast, we talk about diversification, around how he's making the estate more sustainable and future-proofing it for later generations, and how landed estates more generally can be relevant and viable in the 21st century. Well, thanks for having me, Andy. It's really exciting to be here. I suppose one of the differentiators for Bradford Estates is that my father is the Earl of Bradford. You know, I, I will one day be the Earl of Bradford and that actually I'm running the estates. I'm putting the sort of planning in place, the strategy and sort of taking mm. things forward along with my wife, Elisa, as well, who also has the background in real estate. So we're a, sort of a family-led sort of organisation. And in terms of your own journey through the industry, you, you know, you've had a lot of grounding in London at some pretty prominent firms you know you've been involved in some big deals and you've worked extensively in the market I'm interested in I suppose that dynamic growing up knowing that you're growing up into this great state that to some degree your life is set out for you and without bringing out any tiny violins I mean just sort of interested in what that was like well, actually, in some ways, my parents were very London-based. My father had restaurants in London and my mother actually grew up in London. So I actually used to spend a lot of holidays away from school in the sort of big smoke rather than being in the countryside. So you think... Trocadero playing Street Fighter for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> my gap year was, you know, spent some of it in the, you know, in, in very much in the city rather than being in the country. I think really my first kind of understanding of, the weight of responsibility that I was going to come into was when I had one of my first girlfriends was a local farmer's daughter. And he said, well, do you not realise that sort of, you know, in the future, you're going to be responsible for one of the largest land holdings on the Shropshire, Staffordshire counties? You really need to go out and understand what you have. And so, and he was completely right. It was very sage advice. And what I then did at that point is I sort of spent sort of four weeks going around seeing every tenant farmer on our sort of land holding and getting to know their businesses, getting to know them. And by virtue of sort of traveling around, very much got to understand the sort of geography and the sort of the short-term history over 20 years of my father taking over from my grandfather. So that was really a sort of useful, sort of formative experience for me. Mm. And what I understood at that point really was given our sort of geography only being 35 minutes west of Birmingham, equidistant between Telford and Wolverhampton, there was a real opportunity here to sort of create a, a sort of modern day property company. And I hadn't actually, I was just starting doing a classics degree in London at that stage. I hadn't done any real estate courses then, but I really, it sort of came to me sort of one day during that sort of tour, I suppose. And then that sort of set my path over the last sort of 20 years now. Hmm. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And to what degree is the rural element the dominating factor within Bradford Estates and in, I suppose, your future plans as well? 
Well, there are some very deep rural areas within the estates, but also we do have the benefit of having the M54 in the southern boundary, have the A5, A41 trunk roads. We're almost sort of peri-urban in some areas, but unfortunately in the green belt, which is something we have to wrestle with. But um, obviously my sort of background, I sort of did a real estate management master's at, at the University of Reading after my classics degree and then worked at DTZ and then it ended up as a partner in Quadrant, operating partner for institutional private equity money for sort of 10 years. And so really got to grips with, I suppose, urban property. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I felt we needed to really diversify. So about 80 years ago, I uh, we had very little leverage. I borrowed against the uh, farmland and, and set up a industrial estates investment business. And, and now we have about 260,000 square feet of industrial estates in, in different locations around the country. Mm. So I'm keen to carry on in that vein, but still with the sort of long-term investment hat on that we have on the sort of mainland mm. holding. So I guess not too dissimilar from what people like Chris Oglesby began to do in the end of the 90s with Bruntwood. You know, that started off as a 10-person business. He was on the podcast a, a while ago talking about that. And again, that journey is very well recorded now in terms of Bruntwood's tentacles extending way out of their domestic neighbourhood of Manchester, you know, almost down to where you are. So what is your ambition over that period? I mean, you know, you've obviously got a lot of ambition and a big vision for what can be achieved. Tell us about the scale of the estate and what you think is achievable with it. Well, the main asset is a sort of 12,000 acre contiguous land holding, which is actually quite rare to have. There are some big landowners out there, but to have it all in one sort of block gives certain advantages. So I suppose you know, by its nature, rural residential, rural farms, they're low yielding assets. And so really one of the drivers since I came back home in September 19 was to look at how we can take incrementally more risk by doing operating businesses. So we've taken some of the farms back fully in hand from contractors and we're delivering the farming ourselves. That's growing as a business. And potentially we can go full circle and become a contractor for other landowners. Uh, we're also looking at doing our first sort of house building project at the moment on a sort of 20 unit site in sort of North Shropshire. Renewable energy, potentially sort of solar. Again, as a developer operator, we're working with a project manager that has a lot of experience in it. But looking mm. at it from a more operational point of view, I think it's important that we carry on with that journey, taking a bit more risk, getting to know things, taking a bit more risk, but really driving more return from the asset. But I, I guess, particularly now that we're staring down the barrel of the energy crisis, thinking about some of these renewable opportunities that perhaps haven't been popular in the past with rural communities, now presents a pretty big opportunity both for you as an asset owner, but also as someone that could support and provide solutions to big, big problems that communities face, right? Certainly. And I mean, we're currently hiring for a residential asset manager and an asset management director to really get more into sort of customer service of our sort of occupier base. Yeah, And one of those things is being sensitive to energy costs. And uh, I think there's a real opportunity to look at integrating solar panels. We've already started on the journey with air source heat pumps. They're obviously run by electricity. 
So we need to look at how we can connect those with solar panels on appropriate roofs on commercial and and residential buildings. We've also actually reasonably suppressing, I suppose, now looking at it, but we've been insulating walls and lofts of all of our houses as they've reverted back to us from long-term residents. And we've been doing that for about 15 years or so. So they've really got a sort of a tight insulated layer, which should help people get through um, some of these high bills over mm. the next year or so. Also, we put wood burners in our residential properties as well in the countryside. But thinking more broadly on an estate-wide basis, how do you determine what the best land use is? How do you determine whether you fill several fields with photovoltaics or whether you look at single-family housing or whether you look at industrial usage and all of which potentially will be of value and that there'll be demand for, given what we're seeing now in terms of many industries reshoring to Europe, to the UK, constant demand for housing, the need to reduce the brain drain that we're seeing from rural areas, not least because it's so bloody unaffordable to live in London. But how do you create that vision and that plan that balances all of those needs together with where we started in talking about farming and food security, which again has now become a, a big issue? Well, I think, um, you know, Sorry, similar, bit, bit of a big question. <laughs> similar to other sort of property investors, obviously it's slightly dictated by location and by sort of planning designation and what we can do with the land. But putting that to a side maybe for a minute, looking at agricultural land quality, have grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four sort of land. So but then that's the problem, isn't it? Because the English have spent the last 50 years screwing up farmland, haven't we? Um, I think we've looked at, I mean, there's land which you could argue grade three, which shouldn't be under the plough. It should just be pasture with grazing grazed animals on it. And people have put drainage in it to dry it out, to then allow it to be sort of farm. So, I mean, in some of the land of that quality that we have, that would be perfect for solar, actually, because you can install so ground mounted solar, but you can still graze it with sheep so it can stay within the food chain so you haven't necessarily impacted so much on sort of food security yeah you'd have to strim the grass anyway if you weren't using livestock to control it so i think that's a really nice coexistence of food production and and energy production for instance i mean a lot of buildings that we own you know being 19th century or even sort of 60s and 70s modern farm buildings are no longer suit modern sort of agricultural practices so they're obvious candidates for conversion into residential mm. build to rent to provide more local housing or indeed commercial to provide more local employment space so it's really trying to create that sort of ecosystem jobs and homes also looking at you know community assets how we can have fishing pools how we can help maintain the rights of way through our land which mm. sometimes the local councils don't have budget for it's a sort of constellation of different uses we're currently in planning to convert a farm into a wedding venue which we're going to let to a well-known wedding operator who's got a number across the country we're we're really experimenting with lots of different uses but Ultimately, it should bring economic benefits to the local area, which we're a long-term custodian. Have we overlooked the need to support these sorts of areas over the years? A lot's been written and said, and we talk a lot on the podcast about core cities and all the investment flowing into Birmingham and Manchester. But in terms of these emerging areas now that are now coming into the public 
eye. I mean, like Wolverhampton, a good example. It's been something that Andy Street's been talking a lot about. It's been a figment of conversation within the current government. And again, we do have opportunities to create housing and, and commercial space in slightly cheaper locations that might also help spread out wealth, levelling up, if you want to call it that, ultimately is going to be driven by, as you say, creating jobs in areas where people don't necessarily have those opportunities. I mean, I think, you know, the world's slightly changed, you know, coming out of sort of COVID. I think people have paused, people have thought, well, are there better ways of doing things? And I think, you know, certainly farming is one of those, you know, one of those, I think, sort of looking at how we, we've also got labour issues as well. So how we can bring in autonomous technologies, Mm. how we can look at new techniques. I think there's a really exciting development which in sort of farming, which can attract and retain young people in the area. Also sort of construction, there's low carbon sort of alternatives coming out. There's modern methods of construction. Yeah, everyone knows we're big fans of MMC and modular buildings. It's a big, big black stock theme. So, and again, that would work very nicely, wouldn't it, with the sorts of land that you own and and I guess also in terms of minimizing that impact because I think that's obviously the big challenge is being able to explain that you don't need to take a short-term approach do you? No I think we have the benefit of already owning all these assets the capital to buy them or indeed it was inherited you know happened a long time ago many many hundreds of years ago so we're looking at incremental development and um we have the luxury of maybe taking decisions that a developer buying those assets wouldn't. So disused barns, for example, we can look at how we can reuse them for local employment, which wouldn't necessarily achieve the highest capital value, but we're not looking to sell those assets. We're looking to sort of reanimate them, to bring them back into work. And that's why we can look at creating them as sort of local businesses, mm for storage, for leisure uses. So we look at it through a slightly different lens, I suppose. We're also with some of the larger farmhouses. We work with care home operators. We look at taking children from difficult backgrounds, bringing them into the countryside, providing a tranquil environment and rehabilitating them and putting them back into society. So there's lots of these sort of uses that if you actually look under the bonnet that we're sort of doing so yeah that's quite fascinating i'm interested in terms i suppose that the day-to-day elements of estate management where for example you know you're essentially on the hook for flooding you know you're on the hook for maintaining biodiversity all of these things that clearly come at a cost are people you think aware of the commercial realities that come with stewarding a large estate and how these things don't just get done by the fairies i think actually i think it's our responsibility to communicate what we do to the local population at large rather than expecting that they would necessarily understand what the day-to-day management of a landed estate comprises i think we've got much better at that we've got a sort of facebook page with over thousand um, followers now we've got a linkedin we're building our instagram i think we're we're also doing a, a quarterly newsletter not only to occupiers but also some of the private property owners in the area we're also I've heard you're working on a tiktok page as well <laughs> elisa did, did mention that <laughs> i think it's really important for us to do more community events to engage We're just about to start a program going around secondary schools as well. Also getting involved with some um, 
charitable donations to local primary schools. So yeah. to really understand that we're multi-strat business that does lots of different things, and you know, I, and this is quite. This is all quite. This is all really important to you. This stuff, isn't it? I think it is really important to have a kind of a holistic approach to things, and uh, you know, and I, I have to decide on a daily basis whether I repair said bridle way for people to use locally to ride their horses on or invest in a disused farming building to let it to a local business you know one wouldn't actually produce a return for me but it contributes to that kind of holistic impression of what we do Mm. and actually in the end something will probably there'll probably be a return from it because we may start a new livery or convert a farm into a livery so but you sort of then, have this, to take then, a leap of faith and, but, and this essentially drills right to the core of something that we touch on quite a lot on this podcast, which is deriving value and decision-making and people's reliance often at the expense of optimal decision-making on numbers and spreadsheets and rational explanations of things. And sometimes you just know, you just know it's the right thing to do. And I, you know, I know this speaking as a business owner, someone that's set up and exited a couple of businesses. Sometimes you just know, you know, because, you know, you're a smart bloke. You've been around for a while. You've worked at big places. You've worked with the likes of KKR and, and BlackRock and others. And, and you know what a deal looks like. What a, what, And you also equally work with human beings and, and live with lots of them in the local area. And you know what's right to do. And my question, there is a question at the end of the monologue. Um, <laughs> the, the question is, could more people in the industry learn from that approach? Should people put down Excel just occasionally and maybe reflect a little bit more on intuition and on what the human thing to do could be? I think it's difficult if you're led from a short-term sort of investment approach. You know, if you've got a five-year sort of business plan, you've really got to get moving. You've got to create value quickly and then you have to exit from a sort of a trading sort of point of view. But that's a private equity approach. But there are institutional owners out there who hold property for a much longer sort of time frame. So I think there is something to be gained, some value to be added from the sort of community engagement sort of activities that we're sort of undertaking, you know, building in, I suppose from a holistic point of view, building in some renewable energy solutions. Now that's being done on active commercial property management sort of basis. So I think I think there are definite likenesses in sort of approach. And I suppose the urban great estates are great examples of how they're making sort of prime real estate, approaching prime real estate in a very um, enlightened way. Oh, yeah. And there's some of the fascinating stuff that organisations like Cadogan are doing around urban greening, almost dealing with the lack of green space that exists in London in quite progressive ways. Given that, you know, you've spent the last three years bringing everything back in house. Are you a bit of a control freak, Alex? (laughs) (laughs) I think when I came home in September 19, I went to see uh, the Blenheim Estate because I really respect a lot of the activities that they're doing and how they present themselves to the world. And I saw the property director there and he said, don't do anything too dramatic in the first year. You know, get to know what you have, get to know local stakeholders, politicians, sort of parish councils, local businesses, really get into the weeds, get stuck in. And that's what I did really. I didn't really change things dramatically. Uh, And I really got into the essence of, I suppose, what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And I sort of decided that really I felt that 
to use consultants to sort of chart our course wouldn't really suit my sort of hands-on sort of approach. And so I've what I've tried to engender now is to bring a lot of those uses back in-house, mm. farming, construction, finance, asset management, so we can work together as a team. And, you know, they're not natural sort of bedfellows or, you know, a sort of land agent, a commercial surveyor, a builder, yeah. a farmer. So it's quite a diverse sort of, you know, motley crew of sort of people. But actually, I think they've, it's one of those things that, you know, the whole is greater than the parts. Um, and I think we're really doing some really exciting things. And there's lots of parallels and shared learning sort of going on. So I don't regret that decision at all. And did you ever think about maybe just hiring somebody to run Bradford Estates rather than taking up the MD role yourself? Well, you know, Andrew, I, I don't think I could afford someone as qualified as me. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I mean, I think it was the right time for me to sort of come home. You know, I'd done 15 years in the sort of property industry. My father had generously given me now 100% control of the sort of business. I suppose I wasn't aware that COVID was coming, but, you know, a lot of people's lives have changed dramatically during COVID. I suppose it was six months yeah. or so before that. But hey, I've, I've managed to pack in a hell of a lot over that sort of COVID period because we were sort of stuck at home and I spent a lot of sort of business strategizing and, uh, you know, having video calls with interesting people and talking about new strategies. And I, it was hugely useful sort of time for me. And, you know, when I was at Quadrant, I was very much the sort of technician. I was doing the underwriting. I was doing the sort of models, working with the lawyers, with the accountants, back end and front end. And so really to have the sort of advantage of being able to spend time just, you know, shooting the breeze with sort of people has mm. been a real game changer for me. And I, I think a really satisfying experience. And uh, what's been the biggest learning? What's been the most eye-opening thing that you've taken away from executing in this environment well i think it's a slightly slower pace i suppose in the countryside that i'm sort of used to in the city but actually i think that's maybe unfair it's sort of who you surround yourself with and their sort of dynamism so very much what i've tried to do is bring people of a similar approach to sort of work with me who really want to make things happen so um i think also you know when it comes to sort of planning in, in the countryside is things take longer. There's not a presumption towards development like there is in the city. And so um, you've got to have lots of different things going say, on. It's probably, you've many, have... many would argue it's quicker building in Shropshire than London over the last <laughs> 10 years with the current mayor. I, th I think but... you need to have lots of things, you know, lots of balls in the air. So, you know, some things are going to go faster than others, especially if you're used to the kind of pace that that I am. You know, what I've done is pursue lots of different areas. And some of those are going, you know, have been progressing very quickly, like our farming, the promotion of our sort of settlement western, four million square feet commercial around the um, 54 junction and 3,000 houses. You know, that's slower. That's for a long, well, it's, protracted it's, local it's a, plan process. It's so. a big old process. I mean, well, let's talk about planning for a little bit. Because I suppose one of the challenges you have is a challenge that people face all across the country, particularly in in London, where you're looking to plan and develop across different local authority areas. Now you're looking at a whole estate plan, aren't you, which would encompass the various uses that you have. What are some of the things that you're looking to achieve with that? Well, I, I mean, I talk to a lot of local sort of politicians and, um, you know, that's one of the things I've really spent a lot of time doing, speaking to the officers and the sort of politicians since I've got home. And 
what I've been trying to communicate is that we do many activities. We're sort of a landowner. We're not a developer. We're not a house builder. We're not just a farming business. You know, we, we're a multi-strat business. And so really trying to be pigeonholed in one policy in the local plan doesn't really work. And and I can totally understand the officers' positions that they don't want to create precedents in their local plan for greenfield development or, or indeed green belt development. But one of the ways to sort of square things, I think, is this concept of a whole estate plan that really you have to be a landed estate to take it forward. And it's this sort of balance between creating jobs from converting agricultural buildings, but therefore you need housing for the people that sort of work there. You need to maintain your heritage. So you need some planning gain to allow you to maintain listed buildings. You, hmm. There's this sort of coexistence well, all of these, between all of these, these different ones, things. There's, there's a shopping list, isn't there? We know there's biodiversity, there's heritage protection, there's decarbonisation, refurbishment, all of these other things which do come at a significant cost. And I suppose as well, there is a growing awareness of the need to upskill people, of the need to invest in the land, particularly as we, over the last couple of years, have really stared down the barrel of food security, supply chain issues, and all of these other things that have come alongside recent events. Do you think people appreciate your willingness to get creative? You, you talked a little bit before about supported housing, for example, as a sort of small thing that you're able to do. But it would strike me that with all the land and, and assets that Bradford Estates covered, there are quite an array of opportunities for you to work with local authority partners to solve all manner of issues, not single-handedly solve all these issues because you're never going to erode child poverty or deal with issues affecting homelessness or whatever but equally you can provide shelter for people you've got lots of land that you can build stuff on so i think the way that we have tried to approach things is we have a pretty clean slate we haven't farmed for 40 years for example so we can look at best in practice we've been working with harper adams university that is actually only 50 minutes up the road looking at best techniques for sustainable farming for example again with sort of house building we're talking to a couple of manufacturing businesses actually in Shropshire that do sort of timber frame housing, that do timber trusses, how we can build in sustainable construction in some of the housing that we're building, looking at low carbon concrete. So we can start with these key principles that we believe in and use that actually locally to influence, to communicate about best practice. So mm. obviously we're not going to get everything right. Being seen as a kind of local exemplar that you can create innovative, progressive businesses in the rural area. And so, you know, I'm really proud about some of the things that we're sort of doing. And um, I'm really excited about in the autumn to come and talk to some secondary school children locally about those things. Also about real estate, you know, that's my sort of background. And I've come, you know, from the city back to the countryside to do lots of interesting things in real estate as well. So, you know, there must be opportunity. Yeah, I'm trying to present those, promote the opportunities. No, and, and it makes a lot of sense. Do you think the centre of gravity is starting to change in terms of Britain's economic base we're hearing a lot more about the midlands now and the leveling up chatter whether that continues or not under the new regime i guess we'll see but regardless of political slogans there is still a need to create more jobs and more opportunities across the middle of england geographically speaking and we, we've seen the effect of the Commonwealth Games and other investments in Birmingham really start to drive interest in Birmingham. But 
the surrounding areas still needs a bit of a kick, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Black Country is one of the most deprived areas in the country. And, you know, Samwell and Wolverhampton have very low educational sort of attainment. But at the same time, they are the origins of manufacturing in this country. And so um, one of the benefits from Western on sort of new settlement is we are working with the University of Wolverhampton about potentially an educational sort of campus there alongside the sort of Midlands Tech Park, which is our commercial sort of area to locate educators with, with sort of occupiers. So really I'm thinking on a sort of a regional scale about some of the things that we're doing. And our family historically were very important with the Industrial Revolution. You know, we were digging up coal. We were involved with the creation of the canals. We were in creation of the railways. We used to own large tracts of land in Walsall, Bolton, Wigan, on the Welsh border in Stone Quarry. So really the our sort of family's kind of history sort of charts the course of the Midlands and Northwest as well. So, you know, I feel there's a I'd like to really get stuck in. You know, I'm sort of here to stay in, in the sort of Midlands and um I do know Andy Street and I think he's doing a fantastic job as the mayor and I'd like to help facilitate that. I mean, one of the, um, I think, interesting kind of opportunities is to look at agri-tech. We're not in the West Midlands from a, I suppose, a, a geographical border, but we're on the right on the edge. We're and within, we're, within commuting distance of, exactly. of the big universities, aren't you? Exactly. And Harper Adams, you know, which is the centre of excellence for agricultural education in the country. I think it was a real opportunity for us to work as the biggest landed estates on their doorstep together with potentially other educational establishments to look at sort of agri-tech, food processing, autonomous farming, how you bring in circular economy using renewable energy, ground source heat pumps, anaerobic digestion. I've coined this idea of a smart farm, which looking at an all-electric farm with gates that kind of open themselves, that you've got these sort of sensors all over the place you know, attached to sort of cows that sort of come in and that sort of milked robotically. I think there's a real exciting sort of opportunities in that sort of area. And I think I really want to get mm. involved. And a lot of investors are looking at these things from a pure real estate perspective, aren't they, in terms of the opportunity of vertical farming and... Exactly. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've had a couple of investment funds come up to explore the idea of potentially setting up a tree nursery, given we're planting all these trees, that wanting to plant all these trees, we're going to need to grow the saplings, but also looking at the idea of vertical farming, because we're right on the... got 5 million people within an hour, so we're, we're near a lot of distribution sheds for supermarkets, and so actually doing some vertical farming on our land... Actually, arguably, it's better to grow salads in a warehouse on the land because you don't have all the soil disturbance. If it's wet, you've got to get on, you've got to harvest it, it's perishable. So, and and then enabled by renewable energy, I think is a really exciting sort of opportunity. And I think it's difficult for vertical farming to compete in the urban area on land use because I'm not sure it's profitable enough. So I think it has to, probably Mm. has to be kind of in these kind of peri-urban areas. Yeah, but I suppose in terms of where we're going currently with food price inflation and other challenges in transporting goods around, some of these cost dynamics might shift considerably in the coming year. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I think it's really important to create resilient food businesses out there. So it's not just trying to produce as much as possible. You've got to look at the margin. The margin is so important because if you, yes, you, you can produce 
volumes but if you're making a tiny profit something goes wrong then you're a defunct business so you've really got to look at margin and that's why we've looked at regen farming is reducing your fertilizer reducing your insecticides your fungicides because that will ultimately create more profit as well as all the environmental ends as well and that creates more resilient business so i think regen farming you know on the back of a lot of michael gove when he was at defra really sort of set the scene i i think he's been a visionary in that sort of area and i think it's something that we really want to push on with and take that baton forward. Mm. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, look, final question then. What, what would you like your legacy to be? You, I mean, you've been talking about some of the big ideas around Western, some of the kind of cool consumer-facing stuff you've been working on with, with Elisa, your wife, and she's got some fantastic experience from places like WeWork in, in New York and Roundtable Capital right across Europe. So, you know, you've got a great blend of experience within the family shop but what would you like your legacy to be are you planning on having a big family are you planning on and what would you like to be solving uh, any big societal issues well, tell us about some of the things that we can hold you to over the next 10 20 years <laughs> yeah i mean certainly we have sort of family ambitions for the future and we're a sort of legacy driven business by origin but um i think i would like to be seen as my my grandfather actually is he had this kind of reputation as that you know people sort of saw him as someone who was upstanding who was honorable who did what they said they were going to do and i think I'd like to be seen as someone who's enlightened, who's trying to do things in the in the most sustainable and resilient sort of way. And uh, I think ultimately we want to have a diversified business that's doing lots of different things because who knows what the sort of future is going to hold, but very much rooted in our sort of history of long-term management. And that's why I've talked a lot about this idea of sort of a hundred-year plan because... Mm we are a multi-generational business by definition and everything we're doing is through a long-term sort of lens and so I suppose by that very nature people look back in 50 years I want to say that the 50 years of his 100-year plan has turned out well so it's it's a great ambition to have and very best of luck to you so thank you thank you thank you uh, Alex Newport Managing Director Bradford Estates and absolutely look forward to seeing how that progresses and you can check out information about the, the western development online and, and obviously to keep listening to podcasts, you can subscribe on apple amazon spotify all sorts of different places wherever you get your podcasts from wherever you're listening to this you can subscribe do leave a review send us your reviews send us your suggestions send us your guests and thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again very soon bye-bye